Well, welcome to The Professor and the Hack. This is our first podcast after the election result. Professor Peter Van Onsel and I'm Hugh Remington. Much to I my shame. The, much to my shame. Say, what's Hugh? that you're wearing today, Peter? I am wearing all sorts of um, shame. <laughs> <laughs> And a hair shirt. Well, me, me and most of the populace, by the way, I mean, everybody thought Bill oh, yeah. Shorten was going to win. Anyway, I was wrong. Uh, I was at the vanguard of being wrong. I'm happy to say that, but I'm certainly not Robinson Crusoe. What happened? What indeed happened? We, well, we need to talk about the polls. We do need to talk about polls. I, I am done talking about polls, other than the one exception of today, I guess. I, I, I am not making predictions anymore. That's the only prediction I will make is that Never I'm not making make any more predictions. predictions. especially about the future. <laughs> That's the wise old advice. And I Jared think Henderson, Hugh, always loves to throw people's words back at them when they get things wrong. He's done it for a long time and he'll do it to me on this prediction, no doubt. But I've always disagreed with him about that. I've always sort of taken the view, well, that's what I get paid to do is to make predictions and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong and if I'm right, I'm right. The reason I'm not going to make predictions is not because I think that it's bad to do so. I actually think it makes sense. I've come to the realisation that I'm no good at it. I'm, I'm perfectly capable of analysing the policies or where I think the parties are at, but I'm not going to go that extra step anymore and predict who wins because politics has been so volatile in the last 10 years and that's when I've come into it, Hugh. That's when I've been in the game and I've gotten all my predictions wrong. I didn't think Kevin Rudd would become Labor leader. I didn't think Tony Abbott would become Prime Minister. I didn't think the Liberals would copy what Labor did, removing first-term Prime Ministers, and I've been running around telling everyone that the Coalition is unlikely to be able to win this election. I'm, I'm done with that. I'm going to wait till data comes in on the night and that's when I'll start making some calls. You know, it's, it's a really <clears throat> interesting question, this one. Uh, just by the way, the, uh, what this election also did was throw out another great theory and that is that you don't look at the polls, you look at the betting markets because if the polls are wrong, the betting markets were appallingly wrong. They were handing out, on a, handing out money oh. on a Bill Shorten win before the count had even oh, yeah. come in. Yeah, the poll, the, the betting markets were, were way off. Because so we can kill that off then, the betting markets? Well, at least on that occasion, the, the only other time I can remember when the betting markets were this bad, and I'm sure there are other examples, but the one I remember is the state election over in WA in 2008 when Colin Barnett defeated Alan Carpenter. That was one where Colin Barnett was out over $5 and he, he put off a remarkable victory. Similar there, but... For Those me, are small betting markets and they, you know, and the argument that gets put is, is Christopher Pine made the argument on our election coverage on the night is that people betting are relying for, for their information on their own gut feeling and what they're reading in the media yeah. and the polls. So, you know. And that's my only comfort here in my shame, Hugh, is that I, I'm not alone. You're there's, far there's from a alone. Lot of us. You're far but, from alone. And let me say this though about the polling. I actually think the polling was right. I just think that two things happened. One, there was a late shift and then let's not forget, the Liberals have only won this 51-49. So what the polls didn't pick up was the seat-by-seat seat swings because they don't tend to do that. Their sample sizes are too small and the national poll was not that far off. It said 51-49 and it ended up being 49-51. So it was a two-point difference within the margin of error. The other point though, and this is a really important one when analysing polls, I might not make any predictions anymore, but I will say this about polls. Pollsters ask people which way are you going to vote and if you're not sure which way you're leaning? And then it's only the people that answer that that get included in the poll. Anywhere between 5 and 15% of people, even when, when it's put to them that way, still say, I'm undecided, and they are left out of the poll. So whenever you see a poll come in that says 51-49 on the eve of the election, you have to factor in that 1 in 10 people actually said, you know what, even though you've said which way you're voting or if you don't know which way you're leaning... I'm st- 
still not sure, so I'm not part of that sample. And yet they'll still be part of the vote because uh, exactly. compulsory voting. And if that 10% breaks 6% one way, 4% the other, guess what? That turns around a 51.49 to a 49.51. doesn't take much. So it's explicable within the, the polling numbers, but, of course, that gets lost in, in it. One of the things about it is that the last 20 or 30 years has been, uh, has been a bad period, in theory, for gut feelings. So mm. what we've been told, and if you look at Moneyball, if you look at this sort of rise of Nate Silver, we could get ourselves very lost into sort of polling um, obscurities here. But uh, there is a notion that, in fact, the old way of doing things was for people to have gut feelings, whether it's you look at a 15-year-old football player and you have a gut feeling they're going to be a star. And then they started to work on these other things of data, et cetera, and found that there were better ways to predict who'd become a star sports person and it was buried in the data, not in your gut feelings. Your gut feelings carry all kinds of subjective things. And that goes to politics. And so what really struck me was in the final days of this, I was in a whole series of conversations with people who are paid to look at politics. And their gut feelings were that Labor was far weaker than the polls were indicating. Well, we, we talked about this on we the, on the night it. of the election. And yet, and yet what we do as professionals is we say, well, our gut feelings are fine as far as they go, but let's look at the data. And in fact, and, and we had a conversation. This oh, I, remember I remember it. Before we went on air, before the first numbers were counted, you and I were out in the newsroom with John O'Lee who'd been tracking the leaders around. And I had my little piece of paper with all the seats seat. listed, the ones on one side, on the left side, the ones that the coalition could pick up off Labor and on the right side that Labor could pick up off the coalition. And there was three times as many in the Labor column. But I remember with you, I, I was going through the Liberal ones and I said, look... I think that they're going to get all of these and I look at the Labor one and there's so many so I just assume they're going to get enough but my gut is that I can't be confident about each individual one. I, I sort of feel you, like you they said break. the ones that the Coalition are going to pick up are hard wins. You can, yep. you can bank them. And the ones that Labor is after, all of them looked a little soft and you were concerned at that point. And I said uh, that my gut feeling was that Labor would surprise on the downside. That was my gut feeling. Yeah, I, remember that point. You I didn't that. think. I didn't think we should have had it recorded. We should have had it recorded. But but look, I'm, I, what this is interesting. Where is as Big part Brother when process. you need him? Yeah, that's right. We're, we're supposed to be under surveillance all the time. <laughs> Where are the tapes? But but what's interesting about it is is that we override our gut because of the data. But your point, your point was 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 your mental processes coming up to the point that, that the Liberals were safe on the ones that they thought they could pick up, and Labor was softer on the others. And I sort of thought that Labor would probably end up with a minority government um, because that, that's also feeding in what the data is telling me. But we, in this podcast, you know, I said it the first week, I said for the first time I can see that Bill Shorten could lose this election. Mm. And I felt that he performed poorly in that uh, press club debate um, you had a view that Scott yeah, Morrison... Yeah, I, 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 uh, I didn't, but still, yeah. Yeah, yeah but, and it, it's interesting in those sorts of things. And I thought in the last few days... I looked at Short and I thought, this guy can't, he couldn't sell water in the desert. He, he, one of the things which really struck me is that when emotion may come into play here, and I, I concede that, but that when Bob Hawke died, Scott Morrison gave a far more convincing, compelling uh, assessment of Bob Hawke's place in Australian history. And it felt heartwarming and real. And, and it just looked as if, and, and this is not to say that this is what he really felt, but in terms of the way in which he articulated it, I, I thought Bill Shorten was much weaker mm. in saying what 
what Hawke meant to the country and what it, what it meant to him. And I thought that's... Well, see, he just, he's just so much more confected in style. He always was. That's why he was so unpopular. The tragedy, though, for Bill Shorten, apart from the fact that he's replaced John Hewson in losing the unlosable election, you know, John Hewson must have been texting all his mates going, thank God for Bill Shorten. I've been waiting 26 years for this moment. But he's now been well and truly replaced. This is the biggest stuff up and lost unlosable election. Well, in I Australian spoke to John Hewson the day after, and he and it's funny because even in even in even in Bill Shorten taking that mantle, of course, John Hewson has to be reminded that he previously held the mantle, which is not one that he particularly <laughs> enjoyed. The thing about which is interesting is that most of what John Hewson had taken to the people in 1993, his fight back policy program. In fact, over subsequent years, it became policy. Yeah. He couldn't Medicare, sell Medicare, the removal of Medicare was probably the only thing, quite frankly, that didn't. And I remember a Liberal saying to me about Hewson, we could have won in 1993 with Fight Back or we could have won with John Hewson, but we couldn't win with John Hewson trying to sell Fight Back because Hewson was relatively new to politics. Mm. His political skills weren't up there. And it did strike me that the Labor Party could conceivably have won with Shorten they could have won with the policy program, which but was fairly with it, but they yeah. couldn't do both, and that's because you need a salesman. You see, I, Shorten, I think, can explain things. I'm not sure he can convince people, but I think he can explain them, the detail. But in a sense, his issue was was that he was so busy explaining things while the Liberal Party's ad campaign was tearing strips off him, and he's unpopular. He's just unpopular. Now, let's throw a shout-out to Andrew Hurst again. Remember in the last mm-hmm. chat we had, I was saying that, you know, whatever happens, he'll come out of this looking good. He was a green, new, fresh federal director for the Liberal Party. Well, he's looking better than that now. I mean, literally, Scott Morrison is the man. Of course he is. He won the election. But Andrew Hurst is not far behind him. This was a two-man band and what a performance. I will say this, though, and I think this is really important. Liberals have to be careful. I think Scott Morrison and Andrew Hurst know this, but the rest of the mob need to be careful. Hubris is a dangerous thing when you win elections like this. Paul Keating said this is the sweetest victory of all and three years later he was bundled out in catastrophic electoral terms. And John Howard won the 2004 election with an amazing comeback as well and he then was bundled out three years later because and he had hubris the Senate got the better well. of them. Yeah, they had the yeah. Senate. Had everything, all the tailwinds were with him. I want to just, though, just on the question of salesmanship, because you say that uh, Shorten can explain things. I would argue that he can't and that that was the problem for him, that when you looked back, it was stark when we were buried there for about 36 hours, really reflecting on Bob Hawke and who he was. And, uh, you know, I'm old enough to have reported Bob Hawke, to have travelled with Bob Hawke, to, you know, to have seen how he operated and... And you know, I lived through those times. Mm. He he was he was a kind of a guy. It went to his ego to a certain degree, but it was ego harnessed to a good cause. He believed he could persuade people of anything. That he had an intellect that could find the right path forward. But he truly believed. In fact, he was compelled to persuade people, and he would and he would sell and persuade and explain. And Keating was part of that in the high point of their partnership. Where the, you know, this was a time when 30%, only 30% of Australians left school in year 12. Mm. So 60% had yeah, left school before the end. how different that is to and now, yet, isn't it? And yet in the 1980s, despite the fact that we were essentially an uneducated or a poorly educated people, people were having conversations about the links between interest rates and inflation. 
between where the dollar was and how that might happen. And, and because Keating and Hawke were out there all the time explaining and persuading. And there was none of that from Short. And I would say he can't explain, but the key thing is, is that Hawke, Whitlam, even Rudd were all salespeople. They would try. I'd say Rudd the weaker of, of them, but in their times, and particularly Hawke, could, were all salespeople. They wanted what? to sell you an idea and Shorten couldn't he, sell a damn thing. You know, Shorten was better at selling when he was head of the AWU. You know, he, it's almost like he fell victim to the Julia Gillard problem. I mean, she was so much less convincing in her public utterances than what she was like privately and she transformed from deputy leader to prime minister and was never the same, never as mm. good. Shorten is no Gillard but he also was better than Shorten opposition leader when he was Shorten AWU leader. But, you know, you, you talk about you, know, you you sort of lived through and reported through that that Hawke-Keating era. I was a I was a kid during that period. Don't want to sort of age you, Hugh. but Thanks so much, man. But uh, the start of it, I was seven, and at the end of it, you know, I was I was a, a fully fledged adult. And it's damaged people like me and our predictive skills, I think, for how Labor goes federally. You've got to remember history because I grew up with a dominant federal Labor Party selling messages and reform and a public buying it despite recessions, despite high interest rates, despite complexity of microeconomic reform. Labor was the party that not only sold it and went for it and explained it, but then won when doing so. I need to remember that whilst that was the persona that I grew up thinking was normal, actually Liberals governed from 49 till 72. Labor were there for just three years before Liberals got back for eight years. And, of course, then I saw that Hawke-Keating period. But Normal then returned when Howard won in 96 and they governed for nearly 12 years. And even the six years of Rudd and Gillard, they only won one election because the other one was minority government and then, bang, the Liberals now have won three elections on the trot. So people like me in their 40s who were interested in politics as a child but not yet forming it as anything more than through that sort of adolescent brain, need to remember Labor ain't dominant at the federal level. In fact, at the federal level they do lose mm. more often than they well, win. Christopher Pine helpfully pointed out he in the did. 10 election coverage that of the nine elections the Liberals have won or the Coalition has won seven of them. And Labor and only won one of those with a majority. One of the those and the other one he yeah. said was a draw, which is 2010, so uh, all true. We've got a lot to talk about. We need to talk about what is going to be the choice ahead for the Labor Party in finding a leadership and what that choice might mean. And also we have the first monumental, monumental, I think could be enormously damaging, broken promise already from Scott Morrison. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Have you been paying attention? Is back. back. Tom's back. I think I've got another season in me. Well, you don't, but anyway... Anne's back. I sent you that privately. Ed's back. In real life, you're single? Why do you assume that? Because you went on The Bachelor. <laughs> All of your favourites are back for the show that has everyone paying attention. Yeah, Glenn, you watched it, didn't you? Yeah. I went to the toilet this morning. <laughs> Have you been paying attention? On 10. Welcome back. This is The Professor and The Hack. Uh, the Labour Party has a... Now, let's, before we get to the Labour Party leadership, let's talk about a broken promise. Ah. Because this is really astonishing that we haven't yet had the full count of the seats. At the time that we're talking to each other, PVO, 
We don't know the form of the parliament. And already Prime Minister Scott Morrison is breaking the hearts of low and middle income earners. Ten million people expecting a tax cut. So to explain what this was, it came out of the budget. It's only That was in April, bear in mind. And we were given the suggestion that they would be able to have this into law before July 1 so that people got the cut. The reason being, correct me if I'm wrong on this, it's because it was bipartisan and therefore they felt that they could do it without no. legislation no, initially? No, no, This is So if you don't mind, Vivian. No, please. So, the, so down budget night, there's Josh Frydenberg. It's mm. in April. The budget was well received. At the core of it is a thing which enables people to get a low and middle income earners to get a tax return and it's called the low and middle income uh, tax offset. It's a little bit obscure. But Labor supported it. Labor supported yeah. it. So there's no problem with but, that. But that's my point. That's why they apparently didn't need legislation. No, no, no. They thought. No, no, no. Even at the time they said they needed legislation when that's been confirmed by, the, by Scott Morrison today. And here's what they said. They were saying, vote for us at the election and within six weeks... People will get up to $1,000, in fact, nearly $1,100 at the top level. But how, did they, how did they think they were going to get that back without legislation? No, no, no. It was going to be legislated. Before but, July 1? Well, yeah, before July 1. This sounds a little complicated, mm. but, but the core of it is monstrous because I have in front of me, among the many documents, is, a, is that one of the budget documents has the headline, Lower Taxes, and here's what it says. Immediate relief to low and middle income earners, immediate relief. The government will increase the low and middle income tax offset, providing tax relief of up to $1,080 for singles or up to $2,160 for dual income families. The offset will be available in the 2018-19 income year and then subsequent years. So that means this financial year, which ends at so the So why did they think it would be then but not now? Because the plan was, remember the detail. Everyone expected Scott Morrison was going to call the election a week earlier than he did. Mm. Oh, so and he would so have the, the whole, time. Uh, the whole thing was based on on the original date, which was going to be for May the 11th. Everyone was getting ready for May the 11th. And then he held off. And it, I became, about and it became May the 18th. So, and why so now he doesn't and, have time so to get back why does July it matter? One? It's because you can't call Parliament until the writs have been returned. Mm-hmm. This is a process outside the government's hands. The writs don't get returned until June the 28th. The end of the financial year, plainly, is June the 30th. And as Scott Morrison has said, there is not the room or the time to call Parliament between the 28th and the 30th. Well, why not? He should get back for one day and do it so he doesn't break his promise. Because, well, that's what he I says. Looking, he I am looking this up. <laughs> I'm looking this up. Oh, well, that's a Saturday. That's the problem. So the 28th, they're due back on Friday the 28th unless he sits... On Saturday the 29th, he can't do it. He can't do it and he said he's not going to bring it back. He's but not going to sit on the holy day, is he? He's no, not going and, to sit on the and Sunday. So, but so this is why this matters so much. Because you can't bring in the legislation before the end of this financial year because this is a tax offset. You get it retrospectively. So what? Hugh, he didn't think he was going to win the election. He didn't think he, was to, he, didn't think he had to worry <laughs> about this. That <laughs> could be so This is true. so true. I remember talking to some of his team, I don't want to get too specific, about, you know, these long-term income tax cuts and they're sort of, I, I was 
attacking them and, and talking about what effect they would have. And I remember them saying to me, oh, well, that doesn't matter because they're never going to happen. They didn't think this was even yeah. going to happen. But, but it has happened. Oh, that so, is and so, so funny. what's happened is that you've got the government had said, you vote for us and within six weeks, as a single, you'll get $1,080 back if you're on lower middle incomes. As a couple, as a family, you're going to get over $2,000 back in your pocket within six weeks of electing us. Well, they've elected him. He thought- and they're not <laughs> going to deliver because they can't do this retrospectively in the next tax year for this tax year. Well, they're year. trying to apparently. I've certainly read oh, about I've man. read that they're trying to find a way to do that so that it's not a broken promise. But you know what that could end up being? That could end up being the same as the broken promise from Keating. Keating won in 93. LAW law. Exactly. He said that his tax cuts were LAW law. Now, he did deliver them, but he delivered them via super rather than via what you would call income tax cuts. Now, as a result, he was pilloried in the 96 campaign. You'd remember it well. This, even if he retrospectively delivers them, you can bet Labor is going to pillory him. Absolutely. Well, like it's, you know, justify him. He didn't think he was going to win. He didn't think he was. But look, if, if he can manage to find some weird structure by which he can make this happen, he might be able to paper this over. But in his own words, as of today, they can't pull the parliament back before June the 30th. And the whole structure for it, I spoke to Josh Frydenberg about this on, uh, on the budget night. The whole structure to it was that they were going to recall Parliament before the end of the financial year, push this through, and then within weeks people were going to have this $2,000. And what strikes me about that, and it could be because they weren't expecting to win so they didn't think they had to worry about it when, when Scott Morrison was delaying the election for that extra week, is that if you look at Tony Abbott when he made those actually quite unnecessary promises immediately before the, uh, what was it, the 2013 election, uh, when he, no cuts to the ABC, no changes mm. to Medicare, all those things that he did. And then in the in the 2014 budget, immediately after that, he broke almost every one of those promises and that was the end of Abbott. He never recovered from Oh, that. yeah. Well, and there's so, a risk here for Morrison, isn't there? You, because it may be at the beginning of a three-year term, but the notion that you're breaking promises from the moment you've started sits with people for a long time. It's because they didn't think they were going to win. <laughs> they, they thought, oh, maybe they're Australians- in the polls. Australians, you get your $1,000 back, you know, 10 million people, congratulations, aren't you lucky? Let's go to the polls, who cares? We can't win anyway. We'll do our best to try to lose with some dignity. And then they won. And it's like, oh, whoops, uh, so much for the problem. Well, look, I think this is going to be really interesting to see how they wriggle out of this one because it's this... And because the timing of the election is entirely, as you've pointed out, the gift of the Prime Minister. Mm. He can't blame anyone else. It wasn't a cabinet process. It wasn't any other process. You know what I reckon they were planning? Because these were bipartisan in the end, because Labor agreed with them, I reckon that Morrison was probably spending as much time planning his strategy here, Josh Frydenberg as well, deliver this, call the election at that time, and then blame them for not delivering the tax cuts, say that it should have been possible, you should have put pressure on the AEC to get the writs in in time or whatever it might be. You think it's so devious that he thought that he was going to hand this timing difficulty to the Labor Party? Well, they've got two choices. incoming Labor government. Hugh, they've got two choices. They're either devious and calculating and therefore clever, I guess, or they're idiots Mm. and they stuffed it up. So they can choose incompetence or rat cunning. Which one is it? Which one indeed? We're going to see that one play out. It's, that's one of those exquisite yeah, things. You can, because, no, no, I think, no, no, those are the only two choices. But I just have this sense, you look into now uh, a room and there's Scott Morrison and there's Josh Frydenberg, there's a couple of advisors and they're looking at this problem that they've created for themselves 
And I don't know if you've ever really badly, badly, badly stuffed up. God knows I've done it often <laughs> enough. Where that feeling comes, which is like that cold, cold feeling starts somewhere about the crown of your head and starts to descend <laughs> across you and you're thinking, oh, oh, this is... Oh, Hugh, we're not going to get into the details here and, and let me just be very clear that this was pre my current employment or, or indeed my, my most recent employments of any sort. When, but when I was a very young man, I sent an email which I thought was to my wife complaining about my boss, but I'd actually still had the email open oh where I'd hit God. reply to the boss where I was saying no problem. But then I went away, got distracted, came back, and I thought I'd hit forward to my wife. Ooh. So I let rip about, you know, whatever it was. And then I was sort of sitting there opposite her office and then sort of 10 minutes later I was wondering why I hadn't gotten a response from my wife. Then I looked at the email and, yeah, so that, that was my moment. That was your cold <laughs> moment. Let's discuss comment. I remember walking into a minefield once oh my in God. Somalia. You, you just had to gazump my story, <laughs> didn't you? And then realising when a, when a friendly Somali at a distance indicated through sign language that I was standing in a minefield by pointing at my feet and making a sound, that, that making an arm gesture that went boom, uh, and then realised I had to walk out. So but in that, how, but in that instance, how did you get out, Dale? I mean, oh, look, I, I, this is a distraction to the to the story. But I do remember that feeling of 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 suddenly recognising that I was in a line a minefield. That there, there were a couple of clues that I should have picked up on, and that feeling of that cold wash going through your system. You know, I suddenly don't feel so bad about the email. <laughs> well, we're all alive. We're all alive, and and maybe you know Scott Morrison and. Josh Frydenberg will find a way out of their particular See, if, minefield if that they've created. If they're podcast listeners, they will now not feel so bad about their predicament knowing that you were standing in the middle of a minefield. All my own fault. Anyway, let's talk to the minefield that faces the Labor Party now because whatever his strengths and weaknesses, Bill Shorten is gone and they have a choice, Albo or Chris Bowen. Who should they go with, <laughs> Mr. Predictor? I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not making a prediction here. I mean, clearly Albo's got it in the bag. <laughs> I can't even take myself seriously. Um, look, Albanese is certainly the favourite. Chris Bowen is announcing where he grew up that he's going to run. He's going to try to differentiate himself as from the western suburbs of Sydney, the outer suburbs where they've really struggled versus Albo, the inner city guy. I mean, he grew up in the inner city housing commission in, as the child of a single mother and all the rest of it, so let's not you know, try to be too unreasonable to him on that delineation. But you would think Albanese is going to get it, but then people thought that when he was up against Bill Shorten six years ago. People thought it was impossible that someone like him could win. Yeah, except that, of course, people knew back then that Albo was clearly going to be the, the, the choice of the membership of the Labor Party because he's a popular figure, and much then, more popular than Shorten, but the rules that Rudd put in mean that the... The membership gets get half, the, the, the yeah. caucus gets the other half. He lost on the caucus vote. I mean, Anthony Albanese six years ago won 60% of the membership, but he won just under 40% of the caucus and therefore narrowly lost to Shorten. Look, Bowen, Bowen's got all sorts of credentials to lead. The problem is he is the chief architect of the very economic policy that they failed to sell. And he was, as shadow treasurer, the number two salesperson of that policy structure, arguably the number one in terms of his economic literacy. So he does have that baggage to deal with. Mm. Uh, I got a text from a senior Labor person who was trying to confirm while we've been doing this podcast whether this is right that a media alert's come out from Chris Bowen and that he's running. It is. And uh, this person said he's crazy, he's going to get creamed. 
so, and that's so, somebody from his own faction. So, so it's well, going to be well, interesting to so see. So let's talk factions because this matters. Uh, Albert, in the Labour Party, it matters a great deal. Leaders have tended to come from the right or those who have made an accommodation with the right yeah. within the Labour Party. Minor exceptions here and there. Julia Gillard being one. Well, but she shifted from the left into the right. She got the AWU, which is uh, yeah. a big shift. You know, behind it was, her. It was more that she was up against Rudd, really, wasn't it? You know, she was sort of... Kevin Rudd was not really of the right. The cuckoo in the nest in many yeah. ways, as they say. But, OK, so so let's have a look at this. Al- uh, Albo comes traditionally from the left. He does, but the interesting thing, Hugh, is that he, he does fracture the right, but he also, and this is the important point, he fractures the left. There are sections of the Victorian left that would, you know, sort of w- walk through the proverbial landmine rather than vote for Albanese. And I'm talking about the Kim Carr breakaway section of the left down there in Victoria. They can't stand Anthony Albanese. They're what cost him the leadership last time. It wasn't that Bill Shorten got over the line with the right. He actually carved off sections of the caucus left uh, and therefore got over the line. Which is kind of an industrial left. It is. Uh, and they, and they, you know, their issues with Albo aren't policy-based. This is all personality-based and all history-based. You know, they've all been playing Labor games since they were in Young Labor decades ago. They don't like him. It's as simple as that. Now, this is interesting because I've known Albo a little bit over the years, as you do as a political reporter, and one of the things that strikes you about him is that he's a likeable character. He's quick with the joke. He's, you know, he's down to earth. He seems, you know, he, he's got that mm. element. He doesn't seem to up himself. I, um, I, I like him. I mean, I like Chris Bowen for that matter as well. I think the reason that they don't like Albanese comes back to some of their factional fighting. He is very likeable and that's one of the reasons that I think they think he might work as a leader, as a sort of counterweight to Scott Morrison who whose likability went up on the campaign trail, uh, his ability to connect with, with mainstream voters. They think Albo can kind of take him on. But let's not sugarcoat this. Anthony Albanese has been a factional operative including Assistant State Secretary in New South Wales and all the rest of it for many, many years over a lifetime of Labor politicking, you build up your enemies, you know, likeable or not. You know, he knows how to hit you hard factionally and he'd take that as a compliment. And, you know, he's he's warring both personality and to some extent policy, but mostly personality over the years is what's got the Victorians offside as he's protected the New South Wales left's turf. There are sections of the Victorian left that as a result don't like him. The CFMEU as well, or CFMMEU as they are now, don't like him. They were traditionally behind Shorten even though they cost him votes up in North Queensland around Adani, they were backing Shorten. And uh, that was something that Shorten managed to carve off because Albo, even though they're a more traditionally left, centre-left faction or union, I should say, uh, Albanese gives them no quarter. He's no fan of the CFMEU, uh, which is interesting because he, he's more likely to appeal to workers, including mining workers, but the actual CFMEU, he thinks it's rotten to the core and so he would go after them potentially as leader. It'll be interesting to see if he gets more pragmatic and tries to... Might you know, make him more popular in many ways, but uh, he's got to get across the line. Uh, one thing he's got in his favour is that because he's long had an infrastructure shadow portfolio or portfolio, he, he does under, he knows every road in every electorate he in does. Australia. He can get around Australia. He knows a lot about those local kind of issues and... You know, he, he can be convincing in a hard hat talking about things but, that matter to a lot of people in the outer suburbs. But don't you think, for me, the interesting thing about what Labor has to do here it comes back to its policy script, whether it goes with Bowen or, or Albo. The, the, they have disconnected, is the argument, with sections of what you'd call aspirational outer metropolitan Australia. Now, I think there's a lot of misrepresentation about what they intended to do with franking credits and with negative giving. I think that these areas do need reform. But... If Labor wants to succeed in the wake of this disaster, 
they have to learn the same lesson that the Liberals learned in the wake of the fight back 1993 disaster. You can go on to implement a lot of what you were going to do. You've got to sell it better and you've got to frame it better, but you also have to know what to cut. And what Labor has to do is work out in that agenda that upset people, and maybe franking credits is it, maybe it's negative gearing, maybe it's both, but you go back to fight back and, yep, sure, Liberals ended up doing the GST, they ended up doing the IR reform that was in fight back, but you know what they gave up after the 93 defeat? And this is what got John Howard over the line. They gave up plans to abolish Medicare. They looked at the fight back package and they decided that the one part of that that as a party they needed to move on from was from their absolute apoplectic disdain for a socialised health system. From 1987, when Bob Hawke introduced it, or effectively introduced it properly in a full sense, right through to 1994, a year after that devastating 93 election defeat, the Liberal Party, and John Howard in particular, was at the vanguard of saying a socialist healthcare system is not something that a Liberal Party will ever support. We will abolish it. And they got punished time and time again. And then the price of John Howard's political success was to swallow it up and cop it and not disband Medicare. That's why Shorten was so successful in that false scare campaign in 2016 because they revived that, but it was false. Mm. Labor today needs to work out what is its equivalent post this disaster of the Liberal Party's ability to suck it up on a socialised healthcare system. What's Labor's equivalent of a Liberal kind of economic policy that it has to cop? One of the things being is that having it branded as a retiree tax can they recover from that? Can they ever do the franking credit, which seems to me like a pretty good, reasonable piece of policy? Um, can they? Can it be sold if it immediately gets branded as a retiree? It's tax? hard, isn't it? It is, it is hard. It may, may not be impossible in the hands of a good salesperson. We need to talk about women. The two, con- two contenders are both plainly male. Um, Tanya Pulipasek pulled out. Tanya Pulipasek pulled out. But how do they, how do then, plainly, they're not going to have a situation where they have two men. So well, you've got Tanya Pulipasek, who goes point. in there with uh, Chris Bowen, but you can't have Tanya Pulipasek, can you have two inner city, side by side, Sydney um, uh, oh, no, MPs no, no. from the left as leader and deputy leader? Can't happen. No, no. So therefore Tanya Pulipasek has to be farmed out. And that's a problem that's for a Anthony problem. Albanese because even though one-on-one he's probably more likely to defeat Chris Bowen... Uh, this idea of the ticket or how that's going to work is is difficult for him because you can't have two members of the left, as you say, whose electorate to join each other uh, in in the inner city of Sydney with him and Tanya Plibersek. That can't happen. Um, but having said that, it, it won't happen. Having said that, the rules are different. So the leader happens through this ballot process and then after that the caucus, in the old-fashioned way, just chooses the deputy. The caucus won't choose Tanya Plibersek if the membership and the caucus make a decision to go with Anthony Albanese. What does he do then? Does he look for another woman? Um, Claire O'Neill, I've heard mentioned, out of Victoria in the right. She's quite junior. She wasn't even in the shadow ministry, uh, the shadow cabinet, I don't think. I think she was in the outer ministry, but I could be wrong about that. She certainly hasn't been in parliament for very long. Uh, But there's not many other women. I mean, you know what? Let's just call this as it is. Where's Penny Wong when you need her? I mean, seriously, if Bill Shorten wants to do the... she's also from the left. If she was to go down to the lower house, that would be two No, no, but I mean as leader. As leader, sure, As leader. Sure. No, no, if Bill Shorten wants to do his party a service, get out of Maribyrnong, convince Penny Wong to move from South Australia to Melbourne, let her run in his seat and take over as leader of the Labor Party. I mean, she would move. just carve it up, I reckon.
What an interesting idea. The difficulty in some ways for the Labour Party is that if they don't go with it, what you've just suggested, some sort of dramatic shift that gets uh, Penny Wong into the position of the leadership, then almost inevitably they're going to wind up either with a Chris Bone leadership, and I think they'd be salivating over that, mm. or alternatively the most high-profile, most effective lower house member of the Labour Party who's a woman is Tanya Plibersek. She's had the deputy leadership and she will be farmed off. And when you consider how much, you know, she'll have a prominent position on but the it's front not the bench, same, all that kind it's of thing, but same. given that they've made all this currency out of the fact that the Liberal Party is hostile to women, that Julie Bishop could never crack the glass ceiling, et cetera, the, the, they, they've lost that gender argument, which they, I think, probably imagined was a powerful one for them against the coalition, and the coalition could well, say, well, yeah. you don't, we don't want any lectures from you. Tanya Plibersek's the best in your team and what happened to her? You know what Labor's suffering from here, which is really interesting, is that if Albanese is their best candidate for leader, because he's in the left, their problem is all their high-profile and prominent women are also in the left. Yeah. So it's very hard for you to pick one of them, or for them, I should say, obviously, to pick one of them as deputy to a left-wing leader. Now, Tanya Plibersek doubles down on that difficulty because her electorate literally adjoins his. So same state, same city, same inner city. So that's too much. But you look at the other senior women and Penny Wong's of the left and she's in the wrong house anyway. Uh, Catherine King in the lower house is in the left as well. She's from Victoria. That would be ideal for Albo, but she's also in the left. She's certainly not as prominent anyway as Tanya Plibersek. Uh, Christina Keneally... She's in the right, but she's also in New South Wales and she's stuck in the Senate anyway, so she's out. So, you know, they've got these high-profile women, but they're not in the right places to be able to do the job that Anthony Albanese needs. And that's why I've heard Claire O'Neill mentioned. She's very capable. I think she was a McKinsey's um, consultant, you know, which is, you know, high-end consultancy business, unusual within Labor to have someone like that uh, in their ranks. And she's in the right, not the left, and she's out of... Victoria, very, very capable, but she's politically green. I mean, it would be a, you know, people would sit up and say, hang on, how did you become deputy? But that's where they might need to go if they want to not, you know, remove a woman from the deputy leadership but still be able to have, if you like, the balance of state and faction between leader and deputy. Given that we're so good at predictions, we might leave it there before we get locked into anything. <laughs> I'm not making any more predictions other than that we're coming to the end of this podcast. Yeah, that's right. All my predictions from now on will be about the past. Um, Peter Van Onsel and the Professor, so fabulous to talk to you as always Likewise. here on this podcast. And we're not just an election podcast. We will be returning, coming to you. We haven't decided how often. It'll depend on events, I'd imagine. But thank you for listening and, and, uh, and being part of the fun. Uh, and we'll see you again soon. Take care. Professor and the Hack is a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. It is hosted by me, Hugh Remington, and Peter Van Onselen. Professor, you can find us on 10 News First. And this podcast is produced by Stuart Buckland and Sophie Hicks-Lloyd. The audio work is done by Mitch Willard, Bevan Tantu, and Josh Pollock. Thanks to Andre Fromhere and Kat Galang for their assistance. <laughs>